following podcast is sponsored in part by the Blue Ridge Institute for Theological Education and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about these institutions, please visit their websites at bright-va.org. That's B-R-I-T-E-V-A.org or bts.education. And now, here is Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism. Friends, welcome back to Larger for Life. We're glad to have you joining us once again. We are in the midst of question number seven, and Lord willing, we'll be able to wrap up this question here today. We've gone into part four of our study into question number seven of the Larger Catechism, and at least for my money, the previous three episodes have been very fruitful discussions. I trust they've been fruitful for our listeners as well, but we are hoping, Lord willing, to wrap up Uh, question number seven with this episode here in part four. So for those of you who might be tuning in or in the midst of it, or if you haven't been tracking along with us, that's just fine. We are picking up with the descriptors, the attributes of God, most merciful and gracious. That's where we're picking up our discussion today with question number seven. But just for context and refresher, let me go ahead and read question number seven to set the tone of our discussion and then we'll pick up where we left off last time. So here we are, larger catechism number seven, what is God? Answer, God is a spirit in and of himself, infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection, all sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. Every time we read that wonderful question, I just want to burst out and start singing the doxology afterwards. It's almost got a, a lyrical quality to it. It's just wonderful. But friends, we left off last time with most holy and most just, and we paused there. So we're picking up uh, this morning with most merciful and gracious. So let me let me punt it over to Stephen Spinnenweber as he's going to get the conversation rolling here as we think about God and his mercy and graciousness. Most merciful and gracious. Uh, Thanks, Sean. You know, with these two, I'll call them attributes, or these uh, ways in which God relates to uh, the creature, mercy and grace are not exactly synonyms. The way that I've heard it broken down, and I'll kick this over to the group and see what you all think. Graciousness is undeserved kindness shown to an individual versus mercy is undeserved uh, kindness shown to a sinful individual. So God is gracious. We say that God relates to us upon that uh, basis of grace and that God is the blessedness and reward of uh, his creatures. That was the case with Adam and Eve in the garden. That was gracious of God, we might say, to enter into a covenant of life wherein God would be Adam and Eve's blessedness and reward had they continued in that covenant. But we also see that God is merciful in the extension of that covenant of grace thereafter, in the covenant of grace where all that is required of them is to have faith in the Savior to come, the seed of the woman that's going to crush the serpent's head. So that God is holy and just by themselves uh, would be certainly good news. We love the fact that God is holy and just, but because we are transgressors, that might be bad news for us. We would be on the business end of his holy and just wrath But because he's merciful and gracious, we have hope and we have the hope of eternal life that's extended to us 
through the Lord Jesus Christ. Have you guys ever heard that distinction between merciful and gracious before? Do you think it holds water, guys? I think of the two as being separated as really between a positive and a negative aspect. So the positive mm. aspect is grace, the giving forth of gifts that are not deserved uh, to creatures and also uh, to the redeemed. But mercy is actually, it's negative. It, it It is the not giving forth that which is actually deserved. It's the mm -hmm. restraint, the kind restraint of a loving God uh, who accepts the the promise of the sacrifice savior for the sinner. And that's kind of how I d discern the two. You know, if we were to speak of, of mercy uh, in a secular setting, it would almost always be in the context of restraint. Almost always. Yeah. So you know, sin I mean, certainly, you know, kind of baked into the definition of merciful in a way that it's not necessarily mm -hmm. baked into the definition of grace. Is mm -hmm. that fair to say? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. Martin Lloyd Jones has a kind of a different distinction. He says that uh, grace looks down upon sin uh, as a whole, and then mercy uh, is revealed or looks especially upon the uh, consequences of sin. And so he takes that very pastorally and he talks about how our Father is merciful, therefore we are to show mercy. And of course, that lends into. Uh, ways that our faith is shown according to James, the brother of Christ, and, you know, showing mercy is caring for the widows, caring for the orphans, caring for the least of these. Um, and so Martin Lloyd-Jones has a different kind of way that he distinguishes between the two, but it is good for our people to understand that grace and mercy are not synonyms, that we're dealing with two different uh, characteristics or attributes of God where one, he's extending to us this unmerited favor, right? And then secondly, he is showing us mercy in his uh, in his long-sufferingness, which is another characteristic in which the catechism brings up as well. He's not he is not giving us what we deserve, and he is uh, blessing us even though uh, we have deservingly these consequences of sin as well. And so I think all these uh, all these kind of distinguishments uh, interact with each other in the way that we're talking. Yeah, I think that's right. Um, that, that's, that's interesting to know. It's good to know about that slightly different angle that Lloyd-Jones takes it. Yeah, the, the definition, the distinction rather that I've always worked with is, is what you spin and what you, Nick, have already outlined. I remember uh, back at our uh, church camp where I worked in college years, it, it, bordering on being oversimplistic. That's how we would explain it uh, to the campers is, you know, grace is getting something that you don't deserve and mercy is not getting what you very much do deserve, a, a withholding, if you like, of that, your just desserts. You're not getting your just desserts. Uh, and interestingly, that's the, that's the distinction that Voss makes in his commentary on the larger catechism. He traces it along those similar lines. Let me read two sentences from him. The term grace, he says, means any undeserved favor extended by God to any of his creatures, regardless of whether they are sinful or not. But the term mercy means undeserved favor extended to sinful creatures, to those who are not only undeserving, but also ill-deserving. So he makes that distinction along those lines as well, Voss does. I think there needs to be a distinction, too, that the Lord does both of these things in two very different ways, according to persons, okay? So when we 
speak about the unconverted and their reception of the grace of God. Sometimes people would call it common grace. We can't, in in a real sense, speak of it in the same way that we do regarding the redeemed or the elect. Uh, the redeemed and the elect are given um, the benevolence of God on the grounds of Christ's righteousness. That's altogether different, you know, it, than what we're talking about, the creative benevolence of God as good to his creatures and his sustaining and caring and upholding them in the midst of, of his creation. Uh, in fact, that grace uh, to those people or persons generally that are not redeemed um, will be a testimony against them. It'll be held out against them uh, in the day of judgment because they did not uh, receive it with faith and thanksgiving. So there is a distinction here that really does need to be upheld and seen, in, at least in my opinion. And some of our listeners may um, have a different view of the doctrine uh, that often gets called like um, uh, common grace. And uh, that's been um, a thing debated in the church. It's it's had controversy swirling around it uh, over the past 100, 150 years. So uh, it's not as if you know there's only one way of looking at that. Sure. No, that's a good point, Nick. I was just thinking of that of you know, uh, we we don't we won't necessarily get into the weeds in on that here, but some of our listeners might be, you know, they they might take a little bit of umbrage with the term common grace, and they'd say, well, I prefer the term beneficence, or I prefer the term providence. Well, that's fine, whatever whatever term you prefer, but surely there's an agreed on understanding that's in many circles called common grace. Maybe you prefer the term providence, that's fine, but you know, this general idea that good things happen to even the non-elect from the hand of God. So whatever whatever term you might prefer, by all means, feel free to use it. Yeah. Well, and we see that, don't we, in things like marriage, right? I mean, it's not just Christians who can, who can be married and what a blessing marriage is, um, but even unbelievers can enjoy the bliss of marriage and, and of raising children and of being successful in their professions and, um, you know, they look, it's, it's, uh, almost, uh, the fall and I love the fall and winter. I wasn't made for summer, uh, common grace that we have, uh, four seasons, right. To, and the land grows and it, it, just as Jesus says, it rains on the just and the unjust, right? So both, um, both the believers and unbelievers benefit from the rain because it ca causes the crops to grow. Um, but it's almost fall, and I think about football. Is football not a wonderful common grace, right? Who doesn't love, well, other than Sean, who, who doesn't love uh, college football and um, – War and Eagle? Is, is that what you're getting ready to say, War Eagle? I no. I was not getting ready to say that. <laughs> and as much as – we're not getting into this. Okay. But, <laughs> I mean, how fun is um, – I'm ready for some college football talk, guys. Yeah, that's right. So the next podcast, right? Uh, uh, but no, anyways. Uh, but but God allows us to 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 enjoy these things, and and that's why I love the language here of God is most gracious. He's not just gracious. You and I can be gracious, but He is most gracious in that we do not ever uh, run the risk of giving him too much credit for being uh, uh, too gracious. You know, it's he's he's far more gracious than we'll ever be able to give him uh, credit for. In fact, um, I, I tell people all the time, you know, there's so many 
people, when, when things go wrong, they'll say, well, where was God? And why did God allow this to happen? And where was God when this tragedy struck? And you think, you know, you lived all your days without um, ever thinking about God sustaining your life and allowing you to live in blessing and, and peace and ease. Um, you never gave him credit for that, but he was actually being gracious to you this entire time. One last thing, this is about mercy, but I love the quote and I believe it's from Thomas Watson. And he said something uh, to the effect of uh, with every breath, we breathe in and exhale mercy. And um, that's certainly, certainly true. So I just, I love how the catechism um, speaks of he is the most gracious. Mm. That is good. And I have two entirely unserious thoughts to follow up on that. But did y'all hear it? Did y'all hear Derek making his full-fledged embrace of antinomianism? He said, I was made for the fall. I heard that here. He was made for the fall. It was it was recorded. It's 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 here for posterity. So there's that. But then also, to the best of my knowledge, fellas, it's only Derek's team that has a reference in our beloved Trinity hymnal. To the best of my knowledge, look, there is flowing a crimson tide. It's there in the lyrics of the Trinity hymnal. So make of that what you will, if you must. Well, okay, so I need to get this. On that's because right. Dabo goes to New Spring and they only Listen, sing uh, this, modern Christian music. This must get on the record. I say roll tide because I live right outside. I live outside of Tuscaloosa about an hour, but I am actually not an Alabama fan. He's a diehard LSU fan. You sent us a photo of being on the 50 yard line at an Alabama game. Yeah. Some, I, I do go to their game. I live an hour away and people give me tickets. This is the you, insider movement. You're a, you're a plant. It's all a ruse. Okay. Those should were, to a deserving Alabama Crimson Tide fan. If you were to come into my, study at the church it is filled with florida gator memorabilia i'm a die in the wool born and raised florida gator gator bait let's go well officially I mean, derek's no longer going to be on larger for no. life um <laughs> roll roll gator roll right <laughs> <laughs> no um you know as we as we speak about uh alabama football and Nick Saban and, and Dabo Sweeney and Clemson football that, you know, it's a, a rivalry. They, they do not mix well. Um, you know, not only, you know, did we play for multiple national championships, both of those teams and, you know, when's the last time a Florida Gators play for a natty there, Derek? Yeah. 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 That's right. You have to think, um, that's exactly right. I don't have to think 2008 <laughs> Tebow. Um, no, what? No, I. In all seriousness, you know the the coaching, uh, the coaching aspect of Matt Adams is about to come out. But I want us to take a minute because we've been, you know, we've been tiptoeing around it a little bit. Um, one of the very practical questions that we get uh, in the ministry, especially from skeptics and and unbelievers, or maybe even dechurched uh, people who who come back to. Uh, our worship services and want to know um, how do we harmonize that God is good because mercy and grace are both extensions of his goodness, right? That he's good, merciful, gracious, but that he's also just, and he's so just in his actions that he has, as Paul in Romans nine says, 
created some vessels for glory and some vessels for destruction. And so how do we say that that is a an act of God which is good for him to be just or for him to judge sinners? A thought there. So we're going to get into election, no doubt, and I'll kind of unload an illustration here. But we have to remember, what does sinful man deserve at the end of the day? We deserve God's wrath and curse. We are justly deserving of it because God is just and holy. And I liken God's extension of mercy to some and allowing others to fall under his just judgment. I tell people, hey, picture a high security prison. You've got 100 violent criminals, every single one of them guilty of the crimes that they have committed. Uh, the warden comes and says, divide yourselves, half on this side of the room, half on that side of the room. He issues a pardon for the left side of the room, but the right side of the room has to remain in the prison. Now, again, this analogy is not perfect. It doesn't, you know, how are their sins atoned for? And I understand that. But did he do something unjust in allowing the 50 who had to remain in the prison to serve out their life sentence. No, he didn't, right? He commuted the penalty of those mercifully. They did not deserve it, but those whom he passes over were justly deserving of remaining uh, in that place where they're paying for the penalty of their sins and their transgressions. So I think that God is holy and just and merciful. It's as Matt said so well, quoting Romans 9, 23, it's unto ultimately his glory. He makes some vessels for wrath, some for mercy. And even those vessels that are destined for wrath, Derek quoted Thomas Watson. I'm going to quote William Gurnall. He, using Job 1:20 as the inspiration for this quotation, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. He says, all that he gives is more than I deserve. And all that he takes is less than I owe him. That's true of every human being without exception. All mm -hmm. that God gives us, whether by common grace or saving grace, is certainly more than we deserve. And anything that he would require of us, anything that he would take from us, is more than we owe him. So Derek said so well, when we breathe in, we breathe in mercy. I go to Second Peter 3, where it talks about, hey, in 2 Peter uh, 3, 9, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient toward you, not willing that any should perish or not wishing that any should perish, but that all should receive repentance. That God doesn't come and collect now is merciful. And uh, I don't think we could ever accuse God of being rash or quick to judge uh, because he's delayed these things that the fullness of the elect might come in. So a right. couple of thoughts from me. You know, one of the um, things that has stuck with me uh, past couple of years, and so this isn't original to me, but um, somebody kind of flipped that question on his head one time for me. And it's he essentially said, how merciful will it be? How gracious will it be? How good will it be that God would not allow or will not allow sinners into heaven. Um, it, it's merciful to his people for God to cast out what 
uh, defiles his name and does not bring him glory. And they used Revelation 21, 27, but nothing unclean will ever enter into it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Remember, the Lord is working in redemption for his people. Uh, and it brings up that uh, two groups, right, that we were just talking about, this idea of election, this you are my sheep, you are not my sheep. You are my people, you are not my people. I'm not praying for the world, I'm praying for those who are mine. Um, and so for those who are Christ's, it is a mercy that the Lord would judge sinners, that would uh, would strike out against uh, the consequences of sin, destroy the evil one in his dominions. It's, it's, it's great. You know, well, isn't God ultimately giving people what they want? Uh, I mean, I know that maybe not, that maybe does not sound as gracious, but uh, as, as we would uh, perhaps like it to, but ultimately for God to, leave people in their sins and, and, and then ultimately judge them and, um, and uh, uh, send them to a, a sinner's hell. Uh, he's really given them what they want because they, they do not want God. They do not want holiness. They do not want heaven. They do not want Christ. And so he, in a sense um, is being just and is also being gracious and that he's just giving people what they truly want. And that's not him. You know, to go back to Matt's question about how people are struggling over God being just and loving at the same time, uh, these two essential character pieces of the cross, you know, I want to say that I think that people are struggling less with the grace and love part of it and more with the justice portion of it. Um, For sure. And and I think it really boils down to uh, not only a consideration regarding God, but also just justice in general. Uh, we live in a time where that's been obscured. The ideal of justice is obscured, mostly because uh, the ideal of moral right and good has been obscured. People uh, disbelieve in uh, moral good and moral evil. And so one of the things I want to say is I think that at the very bottom of it, they don't see the heinousness or the odious or the offense of sin against God. They don't see that at all. And so they, they really can only see the justice of God being a harsh hand against a creature. They don't see it being a right hand again against an offender. Uh, and part of me wants to say that I think this is because of the place in which, you know, our culture currently is, at least in, in the West. It's mostly peaceful. Uh, but if if you come from a family where someone's killed one of your family members, there's been an egregious crime against your family. You don't have to be told that justice is good. Uh, if, if you've been in a place where uh, human rights uh, have been trampled upon in, in a genocidal war, you don't have to be told that justice is good. It is good. It's a thing desired. In fact, that's one of the cries of the saints in the book of Revelation. How long, how long, O Lord? They're looking for justice. They want the justice of God to come. Uh, this is not an, in any way a thing that's foreign to the offended. And uh, I, I, I just kind of want to look at it and say, it may be because we live in a generation of profound offenders. Uh, that we can't connect with this. We we can't general, generally come to the face of it. And so that's why I think the cross is such a thing uh, to so many that just it's bizarre. It can't make sense. 
uh, but to the person that actually sees the offensive sin against God, it, it's wildly plain. Uh, it's it's terrifying in its rightness and its goodness, uh, and and grace is overwhelming, mercy is overwhelming uh, in its kind uh, love toward the offender and toward those who are being redeemed. Nick, you bring up a a great point. We have a westernized kind of big evangelical understanding of what. Uh, God being the very definition of love means, and of course that's what the what the question that we're tackling uh, is speaking of. You know this this idea of goodness, grace, mercy, all loving. Um, and I was just recently listening to kind of be big evangelical Christian radio, and uh, and I began to cringe because they started talking about how a loving God would never destroy his creation. Um, and, and so they were, they were trying to give a gospel presentation, but they were missing the part that there is judgment upon unrepentant sinners. Um, and so we, we have to be very careful how we uh, speak of God being love. And so I want to actually uh, kick that or punt that to the group. When the, when the catechism speaks of God being most loving or all loving, what do we mean when we say that God is love? Well, you know, one of the things I want to say is that we we cannot take the idea of God's grace and his mercy and distance it from the atoning work of Christ. And, and I think within those two uh, wonderful truths, the truth of God's grace and his mercy in Christ, you have the depiction, the outline, the fullness of, of what his love is. Um, if love is just commuting sin or forgiving sin, we have a God that doesn't write things for us. He doesn't really deal with the issue. Um, it, it would diminish the the love of God to being something like um, palliative care for the dying, just make you comfortable on your way out. It's, it's really not helpful in the long. It just kind of makes things a little less miserable while you're within the, the throes of it. Um, but but the grace and the mercy of God always needs to be understood in the atoning work of Jesus, where the sin is getting punished unto the very utmost, where the Son of God is crushed under the weight of God's wrath, and it's completely poured out, and the Son drinks all of the righteous justice of God against sin so that there's no more. It no longer exists for the Christian. That's where the love of God is fully known. It's it's in the truth of the atonement uh, that there's nothing left but the love of God, the benevolence of God personally from a father to a child, uh, from the creator to the redeemed Christian. Nick, that's so good. And I, I think part of the getting getting to the earlier question, you know, what is love? Not to not to get into an 80s ballad by any stretch, but part of the problem, at least part of the problem is that it's the creator who gets to define what love is the one who made us. Uh, but the problem is in many cases, it's we creatures are wanting to define love. Uh, love to me is fill in the blank. Love to me is, you know, uh, a plate of warm cookies and a box of kittens. Uh, <laughs> uh, love to me is, you know, words of affirmation. Love to me is deeds of service, whatever, fill in the blank with whatever. So when the creature is left to self-determine what, he would like to receive to be the loving act, and then God doesn't give exactly what that creature has in his arrogance uh, presumed to define, then, well, God must be unloving because he's not giving me 
uh, that which I have predetermined that I have decided what love is and that which I need. Um, and so there's a check here, isn't there? Uh, there? There's a check against our ego and our arrogance to to say, well, God is love and God gets to set the definition and the terms of what love is and God showing forth love uh, as scripture reveals it to us. And it may not always align with our immediate uh, proclivities and sensibilities to, de- to define love on our terms. Well, what I, I think one of the reasons why we struggle too to think, well, why would God permit the fall? And resulting from the fall is why do sinners go you know, to hell and fall under God's condemnation? And, you know, for the magnification of his glory. And I think also for the full display of his love, because guys, when do you love your kids most? Or when is your love for your children most clearly seen when they are acting like perfect little cherubs and they're sitting nice and quietly in the pew or when they're acting like hellions and they're really trying your patience, but you continue to love them despite their sin. You know, I think that God's never just doing any one thing for one reason, right? But uh, when you think about God's love is shown in that he makes enemies his friends and that those who sinned against him their whole life long, you know, that those are the recipients of his mercy. So I think this kind of transitions us too into the long suffering of God. God is not just holy, but that he is holy and he is patient that picture together is really something that we need to emphasize that maybe in our evangelism, even God is being patient with you and that you have the gospel freely offered to you. Even now when you don't deserve it, that's a profound instance of his kindness. And do you not see that God with the repeated proclamation of the gospel is flexing his, his long suffering and his patience. I mean, the text of scripture that comes most immediately to my mind is Psalm 103. I'll just read briefly. He talks about the Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love toward those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, So the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him, for he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. I love Psalm 103, 6 to 14, because we have everything about God knowing our frame, his omniscience, his patience, his long suffering and mercy uh, toward those who fear his name. And so what a great encouragement for us to fear God, because if we fear him, he will not turn us away, but he will part our sins from us as far as the East is from the West. God is approachable. He's promised that he is so, and we need to avail ourselves of that promise. You know, one of the things that, one of the things I love most about the love of God, especially for me as a sinner is that he is long suffering. Um, I'm a very impatient person. Um, and how unlike God, uh, is he than me? Um, that he would show patience with me. And that, you know, that's something that we need to, to learn. I, I remember, you know, the old Southern saying that my grandmother used to constantly remind me of is you don't pray for patience because that means that God will make you wait or that God will uh, allow suffering. And, and yet that seems to be a very spiritual immaturity uh, kind of outlook on uh, 
the long sufferingness of Christ. Um, as as I struggle with patience and, and waiting for God um, to answer prayers, uh, even you know, thinking about long suffering and and praying to a God who is long suffering, who answers prayers, but maybe not gives us immediately what we desire. Um, there's a good reason why we should wait, right? Um, he's the He's the Creator. He's uh, our Lord, the author and the finisher of our faith. He knows what we need far better than we know. And and one of the greatest things is that uh, while we're waiting on him, uh, you know, it's it might be might be different than our time frame, but it's never beyond God's timing for what's right uh, in our lives or what's good for our lives and. And so, you know, I've been teaching through, I've mentioned this before, I've been teaching through Thomas Watson's A Godly Man's Picture uh, with my assistant pastor, Don Steger, on Tuesday mornings with a group of men. And we were thinking about the patience of God and how that should influence our patience, especially for us men who uh, struggle with impatience. And he first says, why should we not wait patiently for God? We are servants. It becomes servants to be in a waiting posture one he helps us understand our identity but then he also says why should we not wait for god why should we not be patient with him he has been patient with us did he not wait for our repentance how often did he come year after year before he found fruit did god wait for us and we cannot wait for him a godly man is content to await god's leisure though the vision is delayed he will wait for it and I'm just, you know, one of the things is is when we're on our knees praying and when we're looking for uh, the Lord to, to move in different situations or to answer prayers, we have to remember this characteristic, this attribute of long-suffering. Our Lord was long-suffering with us. He's been long-suffering with us as we've come to faith and repentance. He's been long-suffering with us as we are not holy as we ought. Uh, to be. And so, you know, it, it breeds in the in the practical Christian life, a contentment in the Lord's ways, just knowing that he has been patient with us. You know, isn't this so pastoral? Um, I would guess that you're like me and almost every month uh, as pastors, you hear this question, uh, pastor, how can I be sure that I'm saved? Um, all the time uh, from believing Christians, I hear this. Uh, and it usually comes followed by this uh, sentence, how can I be saved? I'm sinning all the time, all the time. And sometimes there'll be confession of whatever that sin may be, or and sometimes it could even be a little bit shocking and things that a pastor might not delight to hear from uh, one of the members of his own church. But, but one of the things that I, that, that I think is when we consider the long-suffering of God we're, we're considering everything back of that in this catechism uh, answer. Uh, the long-suffering of God has in view the graciousness, the mercy of God, the justice of God, and the holiness of God, because it, it, it understands that God's love is final. It's a complete thing. Uh, it's permanent. It's not fickle like the love of, of a fallen sinner that goes here and there and everywhere and is contingent upon every uh, performance of a person or a partner within a relationship. No, the love of God is only contingent upon the work of Jesus Christ. It's completed. 
It's full, and it's a thing already given over to the Christian as a possession. And it's because of that that we can believe in the long-suffering of God, that he is most long-suffering. He's not like us. You know, we may bear up with one another for a little while, um, you know, with a friend, uh, that friend that always complains about everything. And, you know, you get the phone call and what is it today? You know, um, what happened at work? What happened with the spouse? What happened in their own stability or lack of stability? And at one point or another, most people are going to finally say, well, maybe I just don't answer that call. Or maybe I confront my friend and just say enough is enough. And the long suffering is over. And it's because we have limits, but the love of God and the fullness of the work of Christ has no limit. And it's something completely given to the Christian. So I don't know. I think a view of the long suffering of God, has, it's a bigger thing. Mm. It's, it's more exhaustive and comprehensive than we would guess it to be. And I think that Christians lack a view of it or, or lack a grip of it. Maybe let me say that because they only see one aspect or they think of God being long-suffering like a person. Uh, one of the things I love is that <clears throat> the idiom that you have in the Old Testament that describes or that we usually translate as long-suffering is that God is long of nose, speaks to the patientness, uh, the patience of God. Uh, it's, a, it's a really neat kind of Pinocchio photo of, of the Lord, but uh, anyhow. Nick, you were, I mean, yeah, that, that's, that's spot on. And you know, guys, it reminded me of this wonderful quote that I read in this book recently from our friend Scott Cook, uh, Divine Simplicity in Me and uh, Divine Simplicity and Me, one of uh, Scott Cook, a wonderful work that he's won. And he, he he's ruminating on the love of God. And at one point he says this, love is like the wind. You can't see it, but you can feel it. And to love a person is to see all of their magic and to remind them of it when they have forgotten. And I don't know about you guys, but every time I read that quote from our friend Scott Cook, it just speaks to me in ways that I... I can't even describe, and uh, I was just reminded of that in our discussion today. So he, he might kill you. So we we <laughs> went down to four in my absence, but we might be having to operate with four next time. So somebody needs to get the password to our group call from Sean because he might not be here next week. <laughs> well, well, you we know, have go we, ahead, no, go ahead, I'll, Ben. I was going to bring up the last little characteristic there, but I think you're about to do it too. So I'm go about, ahead. yeah, you be quiet, Matt. Uh, truth. Derek, tell us something true. Uh, what does it mean that God is abundant in goodness and truth? Oh, I don't know. No. <laughs> <laughs> no, um, for him to be abundant in goodness and truth, again, that this speaks to this high view of the character and attributes of God, that God is... Uh, so, um, well, he is completely absent of any falsehood. He is completely absent of any darkness. Uh, God is light and in him, there's no darkness, um, or shadow of turning, anything like that. Um, he is, uh, completely, um, without any negative qualities. He is abundant in goodness and truth. He is, he is truth. Jesus said, Jesus himself said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And um, everything that is true in our world is true because God himself is true and has set the world accordingly so. Um, so all truth ultimately runs back to the one who is ultimately true. The same thing with goodness. 
everything that we could consider good is merely just a reflection and an outpouring, if you will, of the one who is ultimately good. All goodness pours out from him to us. And so we are beneficiaries and experience common good and um, goodness. And we are good to each other. Why? Because we come from the one who is ultimately good and the source of all that is good. So again, a high view of God, a high view of the character of God, the Westminster divines really nail it here on their doctrine of God. You know, that is something that our culture pushes so against right now is that uh, God can be absolutely true and that God can be good. Um, but, but I'm reminded of, of uh, Bob Inks, the doctrine of God. He is the source of goodness and he is the truth in all truth. Um, he is the ground of truth and the very definition of goodness. And so, you know, it's been really uh, a good time, guys, these last four episodes diving into question seven, what God is. I'm sure that we could go on for uh, another four episodes or even more, but for the sake of our listening audience, we probably need to go ahead and move on to questions eight and nine as we begin to tackle the, the great doctrine of the Trinity. And so listeners, stay, stay tuned uh, because I think we're going to have a giveaway here soon uh, on a doctrine of the Trinity book. And, uh, and so we will hopefully see you next time uh, as we gather here for Larger for Life. In the words of Nick Bullock, bye-bye. You have been listening to Larger for Life, a podcast on the Westminster Larger Catechism brought to you by the Blue Ridge Institute and Birmingham Theological Seminary. For more information about this podcast, please visit our website on Podbean at largerforlife.podbean.com where you can subscribe to the show in the podcast platform of your choice and browse past episodes. You can also follow us on Twitter or Facebook. On Twitter, you can follow us at Larger for Life Podcast. And on Facebook, you can follow us at facebook.com slash largerforlife. Be sure to tune in next time and join us again at Larger for Life.